0: everyone, welcome to Geek Thyself, a podcast by a nerd for other nerds that love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather and I'll be your host as we journey into the wondrous land of information. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. My name is Heather and I'll be your host today as we discuss a topic that I found really interesting while I was doing my research. I haven't mentioned this before since you know it's only the second episode, but I'm actually half Japanese. My mother is Japanese American, my father was actually born in England and then came over here to the US. So this topic that I'm covering today is actually something that's very culturally interesting for me as well as being very, very interesting in general. And that is Samurai Women, otherwise known as Onabugesha or Women Warriors. It could also translate to women martial artists. But either way, we are talking about women who fought alongside their men, sometimes defeated men in battle, and all around kicked some major butt. Now, anyone who's studied samurai at all or even watched a few samurai movies can picture the stereotypical Samurai warrior, a man in full body armor, sometimes with or without a helmet, depending on the movie, carrying a large sword, and he's swinging it at another man who looks exactly the same. Or, well, you know, same armor, same weapon, that sort of thing. And often there's some sort of honor issue going on or some sort of code, or they're fighting for their lord. To a certain extent these depictions are accurate, but just like most things in the media today, nothing's 100%. One of the things that is often left out in movies is the fact that among the samurai class, which was actually the ruling class of Japan for quite a long time, among the samurai class, the women also were taught to fight. Now, they weren't expected to necessarily fight in battles with the men at the front line, but they were expected to protect the home, protect the family, and also protect their honor, which was just as important to Samurai women as it was to the men. So during my research, there were so many different examples of women being incredibly strong and fighting and standing up for themselves or for other people or what have you, that I honestly just cannot fit it all into a half hour podcast. Some of it is also a little confusing because if you don't have a lot of knowledge about the honor code of the samurai class and how they ran things, then some of the stories don't make a lot of sense because to us here in the Western world, some of the ideas seem very, very foreign. Things like seppuku, which is basically ritual suicide to preserve your honor. Things like that don't always seem very familiar or easy to understand to those of us here in the Western world because it's not something that we really had culturally. Whereas in the samurai culture, committing seppuku or somehow making it so that your enemy could not capture you was something that was considered very, very honorable. I am not an expert on samurai or the samurai code, but I do want to give you just a couple of brief points that I think are important to know going into the rest of this particular episode so that it's easier to understand where some of these stories are coming from in terms of why they are considered such honorable women fighters. For starters, I mentioned seppuku. To the samurai, being captured was considered very dishonorable. They wanted to die with a sword in hand, whether that meant... By their enemy's hand or by their own, that is what they wanted to do. Because if they were captured, it was a common practice for the enemy to take their head as a trophy. And having your head become a trophy for the enemy was considered dishonorable. It was demoralizing for your fellows on your side as well as being just not something that spoke well of your skill because you didn't make it. Also... Because of this, there are a lot of stories of samurai women committing suicide for various reasons. I don't condone this in any way, shape, or form. This is a very, very long time ago. We are talking about hundreds of years ago. This is not something that needs to happen now. However, it is something that happened then, and I just want that as a disclaimer here for anyone who finds this particular topic a problem. It's mentioned briefly later in the podcast. I'm not going to focus on it, but it's there. To start off the background slash history portion of this podcast, I'm going to talk about something called the Nihon Shoki, roughly translates to history of Japan. It was written in the eighth century and was actually commissioned by the emperors at the time to tell the history of their lineage. It's also where we find some of the very first stories of, or well, the earliest based stories of fighting women, warrior women, being part of the history of Japan's ruling class. The Imperial line at the time considered itself to be the descendants of Amaterasu, the goddess of the sun, who wielded a sword named Cloud Cluster. Her grandson, Ninigi, took possession of that sword later when he went to Earth, and also passed on that treasure then to his own grandson, Jimmu, the first emperor of Japan. This was the history they had written. After Jimmu, there are other accounts of powerful early emperors and empresses. More emperors than empresses, to be honest, but there's a few, and one of the most prominent warrior women of that group is Empress Jingu. She was married to Emperor Chuai, who was the 14th emperor of Japan. He felt that he had been given a divine mission through his lineage to conquer Korea. However, along the way, he died. He didn't make it so far. At this point, Empress Jingu, rather than deciding to go home, pack it in, not do anything, she decided she was going to take on his mission and complete it. Now, what makes this even more impressive is that she was actually pregnant while this was happening, or at least so the story goes. During her trip to Korea, she was actually so pregnant that she felt she was about to give birth. And according, again, to the story, her solution to this was to take a stone and shove it into her loins and pray to the gods to let her make it through the, this battle, make it through this mission before having her child. Personally, I think this sounds really painful and uncomfortable, but according to the story, it worked. She was able to defeat the kingdom of Silla, which was a portion of Korea at the time, and went on to return home victorious, knowing that that portion of Korea was going to have to pay tribute to them every year. And along the way home, she gave birth to her son, Ojin, who later also actually became deified and considered a god in his own right, known as Hachiman. So not only did this woman take up her husband's mantle when he died, she also defeated his enemies, conquered a a kingdom, did all of that while pregnant, and then gave birth to a future god. Pretty strong female character, if you ask me. Traditionally, Empress Jingu's reign is considered to be between 170 and 260 AD, which is a 90-year reign. It's a long time back then. There's not a lot to really tell us 100% if she existed in real life or if maybe she was some sort of compilation of different women, hard to say. We do know that there are outside sources who also made mention of powerful Japanese female rulers. Specifically, There's something in some of the dynastic Chinese histories talking about around 297 AD, a ruler named Himiko, which is a very, very female name for anyone who doesn't speak Japanese. She was known for having powerful magic and being a priestess. And there's actually evidence of rulers being pairs of related men and women. So not necessarily a husband and wife as the ruler, but perhaps a brother and sister or a cousin, something like that. And there's also evidence pointing towards the fact that the male relative would have been more of the management side, probably more of the warfare side, whereas the female relative would have been considered more of a spiritual leader, something along those lines lines some sort of shaman or priestess or powerful witch whatever term you want to use they were known to be more magical and spiritual while the male side took care of the day-to-day business however despite this there have been archaeological finds in tombs from the fourth century in japan where some of these female rulers were buried with weapons and armor indicating that even though they may have been primarily Considered or used as priestesses and shamans in their rule. They also could pick up a weapon and go fight if they had to and They did as there's also record of female shamans on the battlefield during some of the fights from that time frame After this is when things started to decline a little though for the female stature in Japan During the 5th and 6th centuries and into the roughly 200 years later, there are still records of women being rulers and empresses and having more power, though it's usually in reference as a temporary placeholder before a male successor could be found. It doesn't mean they had no power afterwards, but generally speaking, if they were the only ruler, it happened for a brief period of time before a male heir could be found. Then starting around the 8th century we started to see female power roles declining the women were still there but it became more of the secondary citizen situation that we recognize from a lot of samurai movies where the women are definitely not treated as well they're not given as much power the men are the one who run everything that's roughly when it started, as around the eighth century. And it continued on through the 12th century, which is when the samurai class took over as the ruling class of Japan. The samurai took over Japan after the Genpei War, which was from 1180 to 1185 AD. Now, during this battle is also one of the examples of how poorly women were really treated at the time or at least how poorly they could be treated, since obviously not everyone treated them exactly the same. This example happens at the Battle of Nora, which was a sea battle towards the end of the Genpei War. And what happened is at this point, the Taira, which were the ruling class of Japan at the time, the ruling family of Japan at the time, They had been defeated. This was the decisive final battle of the war. And during this defeat, it just so happened that the Taira family had Antoku, the child emperor with them during this fight. To prevent the child emperor from being taken captive and made an example of or losing honor, his grandmother actually drowned him to prevent his capture. She then tried to drown herself as well for the same reason, to prevent capture, to protect her honor the best she could. However, one of the enemy soldiers saw her and yanked her out of the water by her hair. By doing this, he prevented her from being able to drown herself and therefore prevented her from being able to try to preserve her honor by stopping herself from being captured. It's a very strange story, but it does show how little respect that soldier at least had for women that he would not let her protect her honor and instead yanked her out by her hair. It also shows how passive and pathetically portrayed women were at the time in stories. Following the Genpei War, the samurai took over as the ruling class of Japan and formed the shogunate which was the different samurai families all answering to the shogun. And the decisive win at the Battle of Donora also allowed for Minamoto Yoritomo to become the first shogun of Japan. All right, well, with that, we're going to take a small break to discuss our sponsor, Dice Bard, as well as hear about some of the other shows you can find here at NerdSmith. For dice, a tankard for ale, large velvet bags, and t shirts for sale. Beholder bees could too, keeping you warm and an eye on you. If these items intrigue you and you want to learn more, visit dicebar.com. And check out the store. Don't forget to check out DiceBar.com, and use our coupon code, GEEK, for free expedited shipping. And don't forget to check out some of the other wonderful NerdSmith shows, such as Married to the DM. Hi, you've reached Married to the DM. Tessa and Logan. Aren't here right now. Please leave your gaming... Or relationship questions at the sound of the beep, and we'll get back to you... During our next episode. Till then... The couple that plays together... Stays together. Beep! Did you just say beep? (laughs) Yes. I love those two. And now back to Geek Thyself. Now that I've given you a little bit of history about some of how the samurai came to power, as well as what some of their beliefs were regarding women warriors, I'm going to give you information about some of the more famous women samurai. Since I was just talking about the Minamoto family, I'm going to start with Hangaku Gozen. She was also known as Itagaki Gozen. Her brother, Sukinaga revolted against the Minamoto family and was killed by them. Later, Nagamochi, which was another one of her brothers, also led a revolt with his nephew, Sukemori, and his sister, Hangaku. Now, Sukemori and Hangaku actually defended a fortress called Torisaka, and they defended this fortress for three months against the powerful shogunate and their army. It's said that Hangaku actually is the one who took more of a lead than her nephew, Sukemori, And she led and inspired the people to continue fighting. And it was only after she took an arrow and was injured that her army and Torisaka finally surrendered to Minamoto's forces. After her defeat and capture, she was taken to Kamakura, which was the seat of power for the Minamoto shogun at the time, Minamoto Yorie she normally would have committed seppuku and ritually committed suicide to preserve her honor as was often something afforded to enemy warriors at the time, a way to die with honor. Depended on who captured you, but sometimes it happened. However, several of the leaders of Minamoto's forces were so impressed with Hangaku's abilities and her courage that they actually stepped forward to protest this. One in particular asked if he could take her to be his wife. He was so impressed with her that he wanted to marry her because she was so courageous and such a good warrior. The Shogun agreed that this was a better option. And so he gave his approval, the two of them were wed And she ended up having a son. So that story had a semi-happy ending, at least. However, it's followed by more stories of intrigue and revenge being some of the more common themes for women to become fighters. It was actually one of the ways in which women most often achieved this because though they were taught to fight and defend themselves actually going up head to head against other men in battle didn't always happen as often one of the stories that I found while looking into this is that of Miyagino and Shinobu their father Yomosaku was killed by a samurai named Shiga Daishichi Shiga Daishichi was on the run and trying to hide and was surprised by Yomosaku and ended up killing him because he was so startled. He didn't seek out to do this, but it happened. And then he left and thought nothing of it because Yomosaku was a peasant. So what did the samurai care? Miyagino was the older sibling and through unfortunate events and the family needing money, had been sold into prostitution and ended up becoming a high status courtesan in Yoshiwara in Edo. Her sister Shinobu went and told her about what happened with their father and Miyagino's samurai fiance taught them how to fight. He took the two sisters out of the town and taught them both how to fight and how to defend themselves so that they could then turn around and challenge their father's killer for revenge. In 1649, and there's actually legal documentation of this happening in 1649 the two sisters went to the daimyo who was the ruler of the area at the time their lord basically and asked him can we seek revenge for our father it ended up being relatively easy to find shiga daishichi because he actually also served the same daimyo that the two sisters did the daimyo agreed, given the circumstances, that the sisters should be given a chance for their honorable revenge for their father's death. And so the two sisters faced the samurai. Miyagino fought with a naginara, which is the standard uh, traditional weapon of the female samurai. The length of it gave her greater advantage, and the sharp blade at the end made it a deadly weapon. Her sister, Shinobu, fought with a kusarigama, which is essentially a weaponized sickle with a chain on the end. Um, and between the two of them, they were able to easily defeat Shiga Daichi and honor their father's memory and bring honor to the family by avenging his death. This actually brings me into one thing that I hadn't mentioned yet, which is the traditional samurai woman's weapon, which was a naginata. Now, a naginara is essentially a long pole with a short sword blade at the end. One of the differences between this and a spear, like what we would see nowadays, is that the naginata actually has an oval-shaped handle, which made it easier to slice and turn with rather than just stabbing also the blade on the naginata is curved mimicking a katana blade and it's a very deadly weapon it gave the women better leverage if they were fighting men which again since they were taught to defend themselves primarily in the beginning It gave them better leverage to defend themselves and their home because they didn't have to get as close to the other person. The men couldn't get as close with their swords as they needed to and the women could keep the men at bay and try to fight them off with their naginata. One of the most famous samurai women is named Tomoe Gozen and her story is somewhat clouded in mystery because her exact relationship to her leader- Who also may have been her husband who also may have been her lover it it's very vague there's not a lot of definitive information on that point there's also not a lot of information on exactly what happened to her after the battle what is known or at least what is recounted and believed to be true is that she fought bravely at the Battle of Owazu in 1184, which was one of the battles of the Genpei War. She fought with Minamoto Kiso Yoshinaka. And again, some stories say she was his wife. Others say she was just his retainer and one of his warriors, but she is known as being sort of the archetypal woman samurai. She was an incredible warrior incredibly beautiful and it's even said in some of the accounts of her that she could match that she was a match for a thousand warriors with a sword or on horse which especially for a woman to have that written about her at the time is a very big deal now after the battle of wazoo there's several different variations on the story but they all agree that she left the battle and that it was by Yoshinaka's order that she left the battle. Whether it's to relay information or because he didn't want her captured because he cared about her, that all varies depending on which accounting you find. One accounting of what happened to her after the battle is that she just vanished and became a nun somewhere. Another is that she was actually captured by the enemy and ended up being forced to be his concubine, and later bear a son named Asahina Saburo Yoshihide, who was actually a celebrated strongman. Yet others say that she made it back to wherever Yoshinaka sent her, and then just vanished. It's a little sketchy in terms of definite details, but overall she is somewhat idolized as one of the perfect examples of a female samurai she was beautiful she had was graceful she was amazing with a sword she was amazing with a naginata. she was supposed to be brilliant with a bow and wonderful on horseback and one of the premier if not the top martial artist of her time that is what she is known for and because of that she's one of the most famous female samurai and actually there are still shrines and festivals held in her honor as well as several other famous Japanese samurai women Towards the end of the reign of the samurai We see another example of women warriors and how strong they could prove to be um, amongst the samurai class the, the samurai women warriors This happened in Aizu in northern Japan in 1868 and it involved the new Meiji imperial reign trying to take over Japan. This was when the European countries had come in and started influencing the government to support them more and give up the old ways of the samurai. Uh, For anyone who has seen the movie, The Last Samurai, which I'm assuming probably at least a few of you have, This time period is when that movie is set. The rise of the imperialism and the fall of the old ways of the samurai. This is when this battle that I'm speaking of now happened. Now, this battle is known for having many, many examples of courageous women warriors in the middle of the fray, in the battle, facing down the enemy and trying to protect themselves, their families, and their land, and their people. The women of Aizu were very, very well-taught samurai warriors. They were taught the ways of the Naginata, and were very proficient in it. They were also taught how to use sword as well as pen. They were educated as well as being warriors, and they used all of that courage and warrior ability during this battle. When the attack on Aizu Wakamatsu Castle was taking place in 1868, there were rumors circulating that the enemy forces were taking drastic measures to ensure that their enemies did not fight back. The rumors were that they were doing things like setting fires and murdering people all over the country, as well as that they were killing innocent townsfolk and women and children and leaving behind the corpses and just things like that. You know, taking people capture, selling them into slavery. Those sort of sort of horrible rumors were what was going around and many people believed it. So there are quite a few people who died during this battle by committing suicide because they wanted to take their own lives honorably rather than be defiled or dishonored in some way by their captors. There are numerous accounts of the women of Aizu Wakamatsu Castle fighting back or helping during the battle, whether it was taking up arms against the enemy directly or supporting the troops inside the castle while it was besieged. Either way, they were there and they were doing their part. One example of this is a platoon of up to 30 samurai women warriors who fought alongside the men in battle and later became known as the joshigun. They cut their hair, which was a very big deal back then because having long hair was a sign of your femininity and beauty. And they tied up their hair, they tied up their kimonos, and they went out and they fought alongside the men and went face to face with the enemy. At one point during the battle, these joshigun women charged into the fight against the imperial forces who were wielding modern rifles at the, well, modern at the time, rifles. And the women only had their naginadas and their swords, or bows, whatever weapons they had on them. At first, it was incredibly bloody, not surprisingly, considering they were up against guns. However, when the troops realized they were facing women, they tried to stop fighting them, this, though, resulted in the women then being able to work their way through the men and, and kill them, because the men weren't fighting them. One of these women is a famous woman samurai. Her name is Nakano Takiko. Nakano Takiko killed at least five or six men with her naginata before she was finally taken down by a bullet. And these women were so invested in protecting their honor and their way of life and defending themselves and their honor and everyone else's, that at this point, Takeko's sister, Masako, actually cut off her head so that it couldn't be taken as a trophy. She then took the the head back to a local temple to make sure that it was put to rest properly. One story I also read, said that the sisters had actually made this pact going into the battle this is a couple hundred years ago so it's a little hard to be 100 percent accurate but the account one account i read said that the two sisters made a pact to cut each other's heads off if they were killed in battle so that the enemy could not take it and dishonor them that is how strongly they believed in their cause and wanted to protect their honor and it also is just how hardcore they were they were not willing to be taken captive they were not going to let the men do anything to them and they were not going to let their defeat if they were defeated be used against them or those they cared about at the end of October of 1868 the enemy finally launched an all-out offensive at Aizu Wakamatsu Castle and ended up besieging it. A month later, roughly at the beginning of November, a white flag went up and Aizu Wakamatsu Castle finally surrendered. After almost nine months of battle between Aizu Wakamatsu Castle and their enemy, almost 3,000 people from Aizu had died. Among them were 233 women some of whom chose to end their lives to retain their honor, some of whom died because of all the artillery, and some of them in battle. The history of Japanese Samurai women warriors is a long one, and there are a lot of famous battles and honorable women amongst the stories. In modern-day Japan, there are still many shrines to some of these women warriors, there are statues, there are plaques at castles, there are marked gravestones with information about who's there and how she died. These women were few compared to the number of male warriors but they are remembered and I for one am very glad that I looked into their history and got to find out more. I gave a very very Condensed version of the information. And there are so many, so, so many women that I did not discuss because I simply cannot fit it all into this podcast, not in a half hour. If everyone really wanted me to, I could potentially do a second one where I just focus on some of the women I didn't get to. If that's something you guys have an interest in, please let me know. However, as an alternative, if anyone wants to find out, more information i would highly recommend the book that i used as my primary source because honestly i couldn't find a lot out there i looked and looked for books and the one i found is called samurai women 1184 to 1877 it's written by stephen turnbull and it's stephen with a ph i got it off of amazon it's easy to find there but it really is the only book i could find that was specifically on this subject Stephen Turnbull is actually a world recognized military historian. Um, Specifically, he's also known for being a very good historian on topics such as Korean military history and Asian military history. He has other books on Asian military history besides just the Samurai Women book. I would highly recommend checking it out for anyone who wants a lot more information than I was able to give in my podcast. And with that, Please remember to check out the other wonderful podcasts and productions here at nerdsmith.org. I'll be back next week with a new and interesting topic. And until then, don't forget to geek thyself.